The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. By the way, if you dared tip your uh, or, or dip your toe into Facebook or probably other social media today, you it was it was like. Um, it was like dipping your toe into shark-filled waters. Everybody was on edge. Everybody is waiting to pounce on anybody who says anything about the debate one way or another. This is just poison. And, you know, the people that, that hide behind their keyboards and their screens and their phones and, and say, you know, things that they wouldn't say to somebody to their face, you know what? If that's the result of social media, I think we really need to rethink what we're doing. Speaking of which, I started watching, what's what's the name of that uh that documentary, I think it's on Netflix, the social, ne- no, not the social network. That's the one about Facebook. Um, I don't know, whatever. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. There's a documentary on social uh, or on Netflix that talks about the social media companies and their attempt to influence and actually manipulate people. Um, I don't think that's anything that's really a surprise. I mean, they're all businesses. You know, their their goal is to make money. Just because we can get an account for free and we can post things, some things uh, we can't post um, (laughs) for long because they get taken down if they don't uh, meet the standards or the political opinions of those who run those companies. But either way, um, you know, we think of these things as just kind of a platform for us to use, but they're businesses. They're businesses to be uh, to make money. That's what they're there for. Um, We may not like that, but that's just the way it is. Now, my only argument with all of what's going on here is they do have certain exemptions given to them by Congress, and those exemptions are tied to the fact that they do not censor people and they do not edit the content because they claim to be platforms, not editorial vehicles. But once they start making those edits and once they start silencing people because they disagree with them, then I think we need to look at those exemptions. Sure. You're will you're able to do that uh, independent business, whatever Facebook or Instagram or owned by the same company or Twitter, or whomever. But if you're going to do that, then yes, you are editing people, and yes, you are now an an editor of sorts, and you will be subject to the same laws that newspapers are, that television and radio stations are. And if they say something or do something that is um, that um, you know is li- makes them liable for something, then they will suffer the consequences. Right now, they're protected from that. Anyway. So there's my rant, and I will warn you, I'm sure this, 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 uh, these shark-infested waters known as social media will continue for a few days. So be careful. And if you have an opinion, think twice about putting it out there because uh, you know there's people waiting to pounce on you. That's what they do. They sit there and troll social media all day because they're miserable in their own little lives, and then they jump on people. So good luck with that, folks. Anyway, this is not what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about something very, very different, and it's actually a fascinating story. And this is one of those stories that when you hear it, you'll say, why haven't I ever heard this before? Our guest, Miles Harvey, tonight is an author and a professor of English at DePaul University. He's going to be talking about his new book called The King of Confidence, which is a riveting story about the most infamous American con man that you have never heard of. James Strang is his name. He's the self-proclaimed divine king of earth, heaven, and an island in Lake Michigan. That is, of course, until his assassination in 1856. 
the New York Times book review calls this book a jaunty, far-ranging history and adding that despite the frontier setting, there is something eerily contemporary about Harvey's portrait of a real estate huckster with a monarchic ambitions and creative relationship to debt and a genius for mass media. Hmm. Maybe there will be some ties to what we're experiencing. You know, the thing that we have to be able to do is learn from the past to avoid repeating it. So maybe we'll learn something about that tonight. Again, our guest will be Miles Harvey. We'll have him on in just a few moments. Uh, What else do we have to talk about? I need you to subscribe to the YouTube channel. I need you to go to YouTube, search for JV Johnson, hit the subscribe button. There is no charge or fee or anything for that. Uh, just makes you part of our community there. And I also, if you if you would, if you've got Twitch, maybe you want to explore Twitch a little bit. This is a new platform, relatively new anyway. And it's a streaming video platform. It is um, owned by Amazon Prime, so there's a connection there. But it um, they have some unique um, approaches to streaming, and we've got a channel there as well. If you go to Twitch, just look for JV Johnson. And when you find it, you can follow for no charge. But if you subscribe, you get some bonuses like uh, ad-free viewing, plus you get uh, access to the special emotes that we have for the chat room. Um, And the subscription is, uh, you know, there's a fee for it, unless you're an Amazon Prime subscriber. If you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, you can uh, just link your Prime account and there's no additional fee. So you become a subscriber without any additional fee. Uh, I will mention one more thing. So if if you... uh, Maybe you've had this this experience yourself. I don't know. This is the first time we've had it here. My daughter ordered something from Amazon, and it was a it was a high ticket item. It was a, it was an electronics item, and it came, and she opened the package, and there inside the package was the box. She opened the box, which you know was um, I'm not sure, I don't want to say what the product was, but if I did, you you know completely what I'm talking about. But the box was very clearly the correct box, the right item, all that stuff. Opened the box, it was completely empty. There was nothing in the box. The box had been obviously opened previously, obviously, because that would have to have happened for the items inside to be taken out. Uh, nobody knows. Obviously, it, was, it didn't happen uh, here. It didn't happen in the mail because the package was sealed in the original envelope. So it had to happen in the fulfillment area, I would imagine. Um so I would just offer everybody a word of caution if you or start ordering things, particularly high-ticket items like, you know, electronics, things that are kind of coveted. Um, you know, if you, ordered, if you ordered, you know, Bucks Q-tips, I doubt anybody's going to steal those. However, uh, some of these other items, you know, everybody wants to get their hands on. Uh, I would recommend that when you open those packages, you, uh, you're shooting video so that if you open it and you look uh, and it's not there, you can prove to them that it wasn't there when you opened the package. I think Amazon is going to replace this. I'll, I'll update you and let you know. But uh, if they don't, because, you know, in all honesty, from Amazon's perspective, what's to prevent somebody from just saying, oh, yeah, there was nothing in the box? I mean, how do you prove that? I'd use your phone, video, uh, when you're opening something of any significance in case there's a problem like that. Because in the little bit of research that she's done since this happened, it appears this is not an isolated incident. It seems to be happening uh with some frequency because people are talking about it. So, all right, I've said enough. We've got a lot to talk about tonight with our guest. Again, Miles Harvey will join us in just a moment. He's the author of a book called The King of Confidence. This is a story that is interesting. It's fascinating. You're going to say to yourself, how have I not heard of this before? 
That's our conversation tonight. We'll be right back. It's Beyond Reality. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Miles Harvey is an author. He's a professor of English at DePaul University in Chicago. He's written several books, including the one we're going to spend the most time on tonight called The King of Confidence. It's a riveting story of the most infamous American con man you've never heard of. Miles, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's a real honor to have you with us tonight. Oh, JV, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. You know, I've got to say, looking at your work, and I only mentioned the one book, but you've got other books, including The Island of Lost Maps, Painter in a Savage Land. Um, I can tell by the, 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 the stuff you choose to write that you seem to have a real interest in curiously obscure American tales. <laughs> um, how did that interest develop? Because this is some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I think I, I, I do look for stories that... Um, either haven't been told or haven't been told in in a way that makes sense to me. And, you know, our world is just full of fascinating stories, and I think particularly our country is full of weird and wonderful people from history. So that's certainly true of this book. I think that's quite true, and I and I think there are probably dozens, maybe even hundreds, maybe thousands of these these kind of obscure stories which we don't hear about. But when you do hear about them, you're completely fascinated. And it gives you uh, a real intro, uh, not an introduction, but a real inside look at certain points of American history and the American experience. This is one of those stories. Yeah, I think so. You know, the period I was writing about is sometimes called the antebellum it's the period leading up to the Civil War, the decades of great strife in America, but also just like just unbelievable change. You know, there was this communications revolution going on. There was an economic crash, the biggest one until the Great Depression. There was just a suddenly mobile society. So American society is just sort of being rocked. And into it walks this um, guy who uh, was a small-time uh, farmer. He grew up a farm boy in New York and failed lawyer, failed postmaster, failed journalist. Uh, but he moved west, and at that time west was where I live in the Midwest, and remade himself as a prophet of God. And the story takes off from there. His name was James J. Strang. And we'll certainly get into that story, but let's talk a little bit about the period in, period in American history, because I think, you know, in many cases, it's the environment that allows some of these things to be created and occur. And um, you talk about a time in American history where there was a lot of strife, a lot of transition. You mentioned transportation. I mean, you're obviously talking about the railroad, the introduction of railroads. Um, prior to that, you know, the only mode of real transportation was was horse or horse and buggy. Um, you know, things were changing rapidly in America at that point. Yeah, there was an amazing communications revolution going on that the guy I wrote about took advantage of, you know. The photograph, the telegraph, these things change our ideas of time and space just fundamentally. And as you say, 
in comes the, uh, the, the railroads, and, and America is just in a, a really different place, and it's a really unstable society. It's a society where, like, basic ideas of truth, J.V., are just very much in question. And it's no coincidence that out of that society we get the word, the confidence man. We know exactly when that word started. It started in the New York newspaper in 1849, and it spread like wildfire across the country, the, the use of this word, because it described this kind of figure who was in every echelon of society. It's also the age of like T.T. Barnum, the great huckster, the great you know, BSer. And he's also made by this period, but also gave rise to um, just all sorts of new religious movements, um, political movements, but also people who could just take the truth and bend it to their own will. And the guy I wrote about, Strang, was one of those people. And I think he emerged out of that time. And, you know, to get to your earlier question, I mean, I think if I were just to write a dry history about this pre-war period, pre-Civil War period... You know, those have been done, but in Strang, I found a right lightning rod for all the weird enthusiasms and all the great political movements and all the intense upheavals of the period. And so that was why I was drawn to him. Was the introduction of, as you mentioned, telegraph and this instant communication that didn't exist before, or the railroad, which allowed you to travel great distances that you never thought possible prior to that, or, uh, you know, some of these other ideas that were being introduced in that time, you know, we had a, a, an essentially an agrarian society in the United States at that point in our history. And all of a sudden, people are being exposed to well more than just what was within their, you know, their five or ten mile uh, radius of their of their farm. Um, so there was a sense of bewilderment, and there was also a real curiosity and, and a bit of a fear of the unknown as they started to become a little bit more, and I'll use the word, but it wasn't quite worldly, but worldly. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point, J.V. I mean, suddenly America becomes a society of strangers, right? People don't know who they're dealing with. Some guy comes to your town and hands you some currency. Well, at the time, there was no printed currency by the federal government. So we had all these banknotes. They're basically glorified IOUs. And you don't know who to trust. Yeah. I give you a banknote. Uh, I come from Chicago to your hometown, give you a banknote printed in Cincinnati. You may not even know if that bank still exists or if it ever existed. And so you have to go with your gut. You have to go with confidence. And so people who could draw confidence um, had this amazing power in that culture. And then the other thing is, in this upheaval and churning society, all these exciting, great, weird, eccentric sort of religious and spiritual movements get started. I mean, Strang came from this area of western New York that they called the Burned Over District. And the reason they called it that is because it just kept getting like wildfires of emotion and religion kept burning through there. And so it's where Mormonism is born, and Strang was a Mormon or a Mormon spin-off leader, but it's where a lot of, like, really intense religious movements really take root. There's just a great deal of, like, Protestant enthusiasm there. But it's also where some of the great um, political movements are either born or sort of centered. Um, the women's movement is born in this part of New York at that time. And uh, abolitionism, and Strang was also that, is really 
burning hot there, but it's also got, you know, spiritualism and all these apocalyptic movements. There was a guy named Miller who, who came through uh, and, and, and predicted exactly when the world would end. And he had tens of thousands of American followers who not once, but twice gave away all their possessions because Miller had told them the world will end on this date. <laughs> so there was just a lot of that kind of thinking going on. And, and so the truth was just very shifty, and it's an exciting time, but it's also a scary time for a lot of Americans. Was this the time, the age of the snake oil salesman? It's absolutely the age of the snake oil salesman. And one of the things about the guy I wrote about, James J. Strang, is he eventually um, surrounded himself with some of the most colorful characters um, and um, sort of great con men of the mid-19th century. And um, some of them were, in fact, exactly that. Uh, one of his top leaders was, in fact, a snake oil salesman at, in one part of his life. How did this story get your attention? Like I said, before I saw your book, I had never even heard of this man or this story. Um, how did you find it? Well, the first time I ever think that I ever remember hearing about Strang, I live in Chicago, and about two hours northwest of here is a little town called Burlington, Wisconsin. I happen to have... Uh, uh, a dear friend and brother-in-law who lives there. And uh, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I don't know, we were up um, visiting his his parents in this little town of Burlington, Wisconsin. And I remember getting in the car with my buddy uh, and brother-in-law, and he's one in the same, and driving around this town and him pointing to some old stone 19th century buildings. And starting, he started telling me this story about, you know, this was once the home of this, and a spin-off Mormon colony led by this charismatic leader. And um, uh, he eventually moved out of here, uh, uh, but his followers, some of them still live here, and I grew up with some of them, and I remember thinking, wow, what a tale, but not thinking about it very much. And then, I don't know, five or six years ago, I got contacted by my literary agent who said, hey, an editor at Little Brown and Company, it's a big New York publishing house, wants to talk to you. And, you know, I'm always glad to talk to editors, especially um, uh, this one seemed interesting. And But, I, you know, I didn't have high hopes. Um, I just thought, mm, you know, the chances of him having an idea that would really sing to me, even if it was for some money, that it just it, it seemed like a long shot. Sure. But this guy, Ben George, um, when I finally spoke to him, he said, I want you to look into this guy. James J. Strang, I know your work. I think you'd be good at writing this book. And I almost instantly, J.V., um, knew that this was a story I wanted to write. I mean, I just um, was drawn to it because it was a Midwestern story, and I'm a Midwesterner, but more because I just saw him as, you know, this first of all, this three-dimensional figure. He was both a bad person, um, but with some really great characteristics. But also just this guy who just, seemed to me to be the embodiment of a fevered time in American history. And so I dove in and never looked back. And it's really been one of the most exciting projects I've ever worked on. I, I, uh, I will miss James J. Strang. Let's talk about Strang's, uh, I guess, early life. When, do, when does he first show up on the radar? So he, he shows up in... Um, 1843 in the Midwest, and he he um, he was going to come out and work on the what was the, then one of the big 
proposed waterways in the United States. This is before the railroads really hit the Midwest. The Illinois-Michigan Canal, which would connect Lake Michigan via other rivers to the Mississippi Canal, which would basically, the exciting thing was about it, would have connected New York to New Orleans, and did. Um, But um, that canal, construction on that canal was shut down at the time. So he went up to this little um, county in town in Wisconsin where some of his friends from western New York had lived. And they were Mormons, but he didn't seem like he was, you know, he, in he, we have his journals left from his young, from like the time he was about 17 or 18 to the time he was about 21, 22, 23. And he was secretly an atheist and a profound atheist. But he also said, wow, you know, when I talk about religion, because he grew up in a very religious home, people really listen to me and I can really talk about the Bible and people were are really impressed when I do. So he sort of had this seed of this deceiver in him. So at some point he goes in 1844, he goes to Nauvoo, which was then the great um, Mormon capital. And it was a town on the Mississippi river. It's still there. Um, that was arguably as big as Chicago and arguably as important or more important than Chicago at that time. And he meets Joseph Smith the Mormon leader, um, and he's, I don't know if it was real or not, but he converted to um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And um, um, shortly thereafter, Smith was um, shot and killed by a mob of anti-Mormon rioters. And then, lo and behold, Strang, a couple months after, a few months after that, produces a letter that he claims is signed by Smith, um, hands over um, the church to him. And this would be like a private in the U.S. Army suddenly claiming, <laughs> oh, I'm the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? Yeah. Um, but somehow he pulled it off. You know, we know, we, we're pretty sure that experts are pretty sure that um, that letter is a forgery. But it was a good one, and partly because he'd worked as a postmaster. He knew how to forge it. But and even then, he didn't really convince a lot of Mormons, um, but he kept going at it, and he kept—miracles um, kept happening. You know, he dug up some plates in the hills of this little town of Burlington, Wisconsin, like Joseph Smith had dug up plates. And sooner or later, more and more people came to him, and it was partly because he was a really good writer and he was charismatic, but it was also partly because the town of Nauvoo um, was— um, the Mormons were being forced out and forced in their great migration west, which is in such an important a chapter in American history against all odds. You know, they make it out to Salt Lake. Right. But a lot of them knew they were just going into, they all knew they were going into literally uncharted territory. Um, and Strang was um, great at playing on their fears. And so he collected a bunch of people in this town of Burlington and, um, uh, among them were these true believers, but also a bunch of con men. Um, and uh, eventually that town became too small for him. You know, my, my idea about it is, is his critics stayed and his um, followers started to leave, and he realized he needed to go somewhere else. So he moved eventually the whole colony up to this island called Beaver Island in northernmost Lake Michigan. And it was there that he crowned himself... Uh, King of Earth and Heaven, <laughs> in a ceremony uh, with a real th- uh, throne, one of stuffed with um, tree moss, but a real throne, and um, things just went from there. It, the story gets crazier and crazier and crazier. 
Well, you, you you likened him to being a private that suddenly uh, gets put into the uh, position of controlling the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, did Strang have any authority in the uh, Mormon Church while uh, Smith was still alive? No. He may have had some communication with Smith about starting, you know, it was called a stake or a, a, some sort of colony in Burlington, this little town. There were already some Mormons there. Um, one of his associates later wrote that the whole thing was a real estate scheme, that um, Strang and some of his law partner in, in Burlington and some other guys um, wanted to inflate prices, land prices of land they owned in Burlington, when this was kind of a common thing in, on the frontier back then, um, by attracting Mormon settlers to the town. Um, and, you know, uh, by that theory, things just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But I don't know. I mean, it's funny in these extraordinary journals from when he was a young man. He dreams about being king, like literally dreams about being king. At one point, he writes in his journal um, about who was then Princess Victoria of England, uh, later Queen Victoria. He's, you know, he's like... If only I could meet her, I could marry her and become king. You know, he's not joking around. He's very serious. He called them his dreams of royalty and power. And so in some ways, this is the great period of what we call self-made men, right? This is self-actualization. It was a part of the American myth at this time. And in some ways, Strang was just an amazing self-actualizer. He dreamed of being a king. He became that. He dreamed of being a lawyer when he was young, then he became that. He dreamed of being a legislator. He became that. He actually got himself elected to the Michigan State Legislature. And so whatever else you want to say about this guy, he was quite amazing at making his fantasies come true. Had he been exposed to uh, Mormonism uh, prior to leaving New York State? Because obviously, as you mentioned earlier, that's it was kind of the same area where um, the Church of Latter-day Saints got its start? That's absolutely a wonderful question, and the answer is yes. Certainly, um, there, it, it, the area he grew up in was was um, sort of one of the areas that where there were a lot of um, adherence to this exciting new hip religion that Mormonism was. Um, and I think it's, it's um, obviously there are millions of Mormons in the United States today, but I think perhaps even for some of them, it's it's easy to forget what a exciting uh, and attractive religion Mormonism was. I mean, whatever you want to say about the Book of Mormon, um, uh, it was an amazing. I'm an English professor, so I it just as an act of literature, it was an amazing thing to say the Bible A is ongoing. It's not this thing that ended thousands of years ago. It's ongoing, and it's playing out here on the North American continent. That must have been just so attractive to people. Strang, in his diary, expresses no interest in that, and he expresses contempt for the sort of um, uh, religious revivalism uh, going on all around him. This was the the great age of um, revivalism in, in Western New York, and he just had nothing but contempt for it, but he was exposed to it, and I think that was formative for him. When we talk about um, men of that era, particularly men that, as you said, are self-made, we 
often think of um, a system that's very different than it is today. You don't necessarily need a college degree. You don't necessarily even need a high school diploma. Uh, you just need to do. You need to act, and you need to do. And it sounds like Strang was one of those folks. Oh, I love the way you put that, J.D. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I like to compare Strang to one of his contemporaries, Abe Lincoln. I mean, they have so much in common. Lincoln grew up in a small town. They both were country lawyers. And as you point out, to become a lawyer back then, you didn't get a law degree, or you could get a law degree, but most people didn't, not in rural areas. You studied with another lawyer. It was sort of an internship, or, you know, um, this guy takes you under his wing, and you have to study his law books, and sooner or later you practice on your own. Both of them were postmasters, which, you know, doesn't sound like that interesting a job, but it was a huge patronage job. So for a lot of up-and-coming young men, being a postmaster was a vital position. They were both state legislators. And the interesting thing to me about Strang and Lincoln is that for a big chunk of their sort of parallel lives, Strang was the much more famous one. He eventually became this hugely nationally famous one person. And when he was uh, murdered in 1856, that was just when Lincoln's career was really starting to take off on a national level. Um, and so, yeah, it was a really different period. And, and I think you could transform. The other thing is, like with communication cut off, you could always go to a new place, especially on the wilderness, and recreate yourself. Right. So you, there were always new beginnings. You know, there was this... Uh, Expression GTT people would paint on their buildings, which was gone to Texas, which literally often meant Texas. It also just kind of meant um, it became to mean kind of metaphorically, hey, I, I got too many debts here. I'm out of here and I'm just going to start over somewhere else. And you literally started over. I mean, it's a lot of times you just changed your name. People fake their own deaths all the time. Some of Strang's associates fake their own deaths just to get out of debt and get a new start. And, and, um, so it was a really different time. I think you're right that you, there was a lot more ability to to realize your dreams um, in good ways and bad. You mentioned a letter that Strang produced after the death of uh, Joseph Smith that basically handed over uh, the Mormon Church and the leadership of it to Strang. Uh, you said it's uh, you know experts consider it to be a forgery. Does that letter still exist? Yeah, it's at the Yale University Library. So there's a wonderful collection at the famous Beinecke Library of Strang stuff. And part of that has to do with um, an earlier biographer of Strang, who in the 1930s and probably in the 20s um, even got in touch with some of the surviving members of Strang's sect, but wrote a, a very interesting biography of him, but, but collected all this amazing material in one place. And one thing, as we know from, for instance, Ancestry.com, which is, as, as you know, is, is, is based on Mormon records originally. Right. The Mormons from the start were great record keepers, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is that they, they, they thought literally, so, you know, it's Latter-day Saints, because at the time people believed that the world was in its last days, and that they were going to usher in, within their lifetimes, the second coming of Christ. And this was certainly true of Strang's followers. And so when people try to understand his charisma, 
What he was offering is come to this little island, Beaver Island, follow me, together we'll usher in the second coming. It's a very seductive thing for a lot of people, especially people disenfranchised by these this economic calamity we've been talking about and these, these other upheavals in culture. Um, and so Strang was able to, and other, other people like him, were able to draw a lot of followers by the, the promise that their lives would get better. When we talk about a lot of followers, now you have this point, uh, a very important and a pivotal, pivotal point of the Mormon Church's history here. Uh, they're being forced out of Nouveau, as you said. They, they, most of them plan to go west. Is that with Brigham Young at that point? Yeah, Brigham Young was um, sort of the de facto head before he was kind of made the real head of the church. And, um, you know, Strang, one of the advantages Strang had over him was um, uh, that Strang uh, claimed to be a prophet of God. And at the beginning, Young said, no, I'm just, you know, I'm just a technocrat. I'm just, you know, sort of a a guy who's taken over for our, our lost prophet. And that was probably a strategic mistake on, on Young's part. He later claimed more prophetic powers. But but Strang said, you know, I, I, I'm a conduit to God. And I think a lot of the followers wanted that. I mean, Strang never had as many followers as Young, but he was a real competition to Young, right? And for many years, he was a real competition to Young. And, you know, we look back now, it seems obvious that Young succeeded and Strang failed. But at the time, things weren't quite that way. Well into Strang's life, there was serious talk about him being appointed governor of Utah, which would have given him power over Young. So um, at the time, it was it was a much different thing. But um, it took Strang a while. You know, that letter he produced um, didn't go over well, um, but he slowly built followers, and he had a real great way of surrounding himself with these charismatic scoundrels who were really, really good at at getting people. And, and this one guy in particular, George J. Adams, who's kind of one of the legendary uh, figures of the 19th century, in a way, he, he was a Shakespearean actor and a, um, uh, a, a, a preacher for Strang, um, and a, a drunk and a man whose uh, uh, body odor was commented on as being abhorrent, but he was also like a hugely charismatic guy. So he'd go and perform Richard III one night, and then he'd go to an, a, the, another place in town or the same theater and preach for Strang. And he just had an ability uh, to draw people. He had gone to England for the other branch of the church back when Smith was still alive, and he'd, he'd drawn thousands of people to Nauvoo. Um, and so Strang had these 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 wonderful characters around him who knew how to draw people, and he did too. And they'd go on these recruiting tours in the East and promise people, you know, come back to the paradise. You know, and people had never seen Burlington, which was, you know, by the time he left there, a real slum. It was just all these people living in lean-tos and whatnot. Or then Beaver Island, which was, you know, um, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But it gets really cold there in the winter. It's really far north. And, uh, you know, you're really cut off from the rest of the world. And Strang probably had a reason for that. Uh, among other things, um, one of the things my research shows is, and I can talk more about that, is that Strang was running a, a pirate colony out of Beaver Island. Talk about numbers a little bit, just so we have a sense. Um, at, at the point of this 
this pivotal moment in Mormon history, how many Mormon followers were there about, and and what was the split? How many went with Brigham Young, and how many ended up with Strang? Yeah, I mean, I think numbers are hard to, to go with, but then, so um, I, I think there were, you know, probably, I think, I, and I and please don't hold me to this if your callers uh, start shooting you, you or your listeners start shooting you text. I think Nauvoo had a population of about eleven or twelve thousand, if I'm remembering correctly. But I, I have to look that up. And Strang made wild claims about how many followers he had, and he was great at manipulating the media. And so there were reports that ten thousand people lived in Burlington. In fact, it was probably only a few hundred. And at the at, by the end, I mean, I think he had a, a sizable following, and we can talk about how. Seriously, the U.S. government uh, took his following. But, you know, he would claim it to be in the thousands. Um, but I think it was probably closer to, you know, uh, maybe a thousand tops at, at, at any point, but maybe closer to 500. I mean, part of the problem is he was, um, he was a really great writer, and he really understood the power of newspapers and how to get, I can talk about that, how to get his word out through newspapers, through this sort of early system of the internet he was brilliant at manipulating um but he would um he would lie about these kind of things and so it, it was a little it's a little hard to tell how many followers he had but i think it was much closer to 700 or 1000 at any time in burlington um than it's certainly not 10000 i mean in the, the beaver island certainly not 10000 or, or something like that so so young had many more and eventually you know salt lake city is this amazing Story. Eventually, there were you know tens of thousands of people out there. Um, Young was a brilliant organizer. Um, against all odds, um, he was able to to build this thriving city out there. And um, but for a long time, it looked like he would fail, uh, even in his trip west. And and Strang played on that. We might be getting our ahead of ourselves in this discussion, but I, I watched a, a documentary series. I watched it on Netflix. I think it was a PBS series, though, uh, called The West, and it talks about the American expansion westward. And one of the episodes focused on the Mormon uh, migration west. And my understanding of uh, what was happening to the uh, Mormons as they pushed west was they were somewhat persecuted by the U.S. government. You mentioned the U.S. government. Um, the U.S. government did not have a favorable attitude of the Mormon Church, from what I understand. Oh no, the Mar- no the, the 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 Mormons were I mean um, were persecuted um, throughout their history. I mean, um, uh, and much of that is just blind religious religious hatred, hatred of new things. You know, I mean, um, are you know we still have an intolerance of. Um, things that seem like the other to us in the United States. And the Mormons definitely seemed like the other, and many of them were the other. These were often poor people. Many of them were immigrants, especially from England. Um, So there was a lot of anti-Mormon bias, including uh, on behalf of the U.S. government. It it must be said, however, J.D., that both in Nauvoo, and then this is a model strang um, later uh, with using uh, some of the same people, um, followed is Nauvoo was also known as uh, a haven because they had they had negotiated uh, one of the guys who would later be Strang's top lieutenants, a guy by the by the name of Bennett, had negotiated um, 
with Illinois, this quasi-independent status for Nauvoo, which, among other things, protected um, forgers and um, thieves and sort of made Nauvoo into this um, launching base for all sorts of nefarious characters. Um, and Beaver Island became the same way. So some of the uh, anti-Mormon bias was uh, simply local people who uh, didn't like being cheated or robbed. Um, I, this is not, I want to be really clear to your listeners, there was a great deal of anti-Mormon bias, and I am not at all saying that it, it was, uh, all of it was justified or, or even the greater part of it was justified. I'm just saying, realistically on the ground, there were tensions between um, the people from the church and from Nauvoo and um, local people. String uh, produces a letter. He starts to gather followers, and he develops a, um, a bit of a, obviously not a bit of, but a serious leadership role here. Uh, what's the time period between the death of Smith and the point at which he, he has his own community, um, and then he heads to Beaver Island? You know, it, it, it took him a while. No one, no one, So Smith dies in 18... 18- 44, and it takes Strang a little while. Um, so certainly he was building up a huge following within a couple of years, or a big following, I don't want to say huge ever with him, in, in this town of Burlington, Wisconsin, within a couple of years. And he was, he was brilliant at getting, um, using his newspapers that he set up there um, to get his stories out. In so what would, there was this exchange paper system that was set up where newspapers could send, could mail news, uh, their products to other newspapers and receive newspapers from other newspapers for free in the U.S. mail. And what it set up was a kind of Twitter, really, where <laughs> you would clip stories from other newspapers and put them in your newspaper, sometimes with bylines and attributions, but other times you'd just put them in there. And Strang was brilliant at using this to get human interest stories about his colonies into papers across the country and eventually to draw uh, a followers. Yeah, so he, he got um, more and more followers, and then he wanted to move north. And he crowns himself king in 1850, and that's really when he moves north. He goes on this big tour of the east in 1849, 1850, raises some money and some recruits and just heads back, and he moves to Beaver Island full-time in 1850, and in the summer of 1850 is when he's crowned king with a great uh, and slightly comic ceremony in Beaver Island. And then his kingdom goes on uh, from there. Um, and, you know, it's easy for us to kind of laugh at, at um, this kingdom, but the U.S. government sure wasn't laughing Millard Fillmore, the president of the United States, took the threat of this quasi-independent kingdom on U.S. soil seriously enough that he sent the U.S. Navy's first iron-hulled warship up to raid Strang, and he did so and brought Strang back to trial in 1851. And um, Strang uh, wins this federal trial in Detroit. He and his followers are not convicted. They're set free. Millard Fillmore leaves office in 1853 and sort of, not quite shame, but he goes down and he wasn't even wanted by his own party to run again. Um, he goes down as one of the least effective presidents in U.S. history. 
So he leaves in 1853, the president, and the king is still in power. <laughs> uh, and, and so, uh, you know, we can laugh at Strang, but he outlasted the president who tried to bring him to justice. What, what, what laws did they accuse him of breaking? I mean, were they doing things like disregarding U.S. Uh, tax policy or, or commerce policy or immigration policy? Was there? Some, I mean, I don't think it's a crime to declare yourself king. I guess, I guess there has to be something else involved there. Yeah, part of the problem was um, uh, the the um, prosecutor um, who is a, just another one of the many colorful, uh, bigger than life figures um, in, in my book and in that period um, uh, was uh, much more interested in headlines uh, and in proving that Mormonism was a bad thing uh, than in putting Strang in jail. So. Strang was, and his followers were, almost certainly guilty of what would then serious crimes, which he was basically set up a squatter colony on Beaver Island. That had been, uh, well, it had been Native American land until very recently before then. And um, the federal government owned that land. And, and Strang and his, um, his followers bought a few parcels, but mostly they just squatted on federal land. And um, they poached trees. Beaver Island was rich with with uh, timber. And, you know, again, that might not sound like a big deal, but timber was a vital, vital resource then. It's sort of like um, poaching gasoline would be now. The the train at uh, the railroad system wasn't through the Midwest. So the way you got from Detroit um, and from the east was to take steamboats up in the circuitous route through the Great Lakes. And Beaver Island was a stop for the steamboats, which burned wood. So this was very valuable. Um, they called uh, one his in modern historian has called uh, you know Michigan timber green gold because it was used for fuel and it was used to settle the prairies. Um, it's just a vital resource. They could have convicted Strang of that, but it wasn't sexy enough to the to the prosecutor. So he sort of put that on the back burner and tried to get him on counterfeiting charges and um, stealing the U.S. mail. He may have done both of those things. The the evidence was flimsier. And um, he was found not guilty, and, and the government was so embarrassed it dropped the rest of the charges. And so um, it was quite a victory for him, and I, I think it increased his, his stature around the country, um, you know, uh, in sort of good ways and bad. Um, but he, but he, no one could say um, that he hadn't beat the U.S. government, and I, I think— the government saw him as a threat from, from then on, and I think it's quite probable that both the state of Michigan and the federal government were involved in his murder. Now, you used a word a little while ago. You said pirate or piracy. What what was he involved with that would fall under the category of piracy? Oh, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Um, he, um, one, the first thing he did when he um, named himself king, I think on the next day he bought a schooner for quite a bit of money. And there's practical reasons you'd buy this ship, which is really good at maneuvering and really fast. But uh, P.S., this this ship is also a favorite of pirates um, at that time and in earlier times. Um, So he would send out or allegedly send out raiding parties all over uh, Lake Michigan, um, including uh, allegedly to Chicago, uh, and other places, there were constant press reports about Strang's people um, raiding um, towns. He also um, uh, would send out um, horse thieves, bands of, of people involved in horse theft all over the Midwest. And that, again, is um, 
horse theft was a huge deal then. They, these were valuable resources in almost everything you might want to do, and they had a high dollar value. Um, and so newspapers at the time were full of stories about this. But, you know, Strang always claimed, no, this is anti-Mormon bias. I'm not doing this. Fake news, we would say today, right? Right. Um, and, and he... Um, and some people who have written about his colony since have, have gone with that. You know, there was one guy who wrote a whole book about how Strang was persecuted, how this was the anti-Mormon press. And so one of the things I really set out to do with the book was to find out if, if with the King of Confidence, was to find out if that was true or not, these, these allegations of a pirate colony. As a longtime journalist myself, I know that um, sometimes stories are wrong, um, and sometimes reporters don't, either through malice or um, mistakes, don't get the facts right. Um, but these, these, these stories were so widespread and so constant, it seemed to me unlikely that everybody would be making this up. But there weren't, uh, there, it's, it's true that there weren't a lot of cases that said, okay, we can place Strang at the scene of the crime. Um, and so I... Through research and digging, I came about on a case in Perrysburg, Ohio, um, in the in the northwestern part of the state. Um, that it's near Toledo. Uh, that is um, was incredibly well documented and documented in real time. In other words, not after the fact, as it went on. So what happened was in 1853, a guy came to this little community in Ohio. He stole some horses. They sent out a posse. He was caught and brought back. It turned out he was one of Strang's absolutely top lieutenants. Um, he was put on trial. Strang came to town. And I got lucky on this one because, like many small-town editors uh, in that period, the guy who wrote this little small-town paper was an absolutely wonderful, funny, and uh, observant writer and wrote about Strang's entry into town and predicted that there was no good to come from this, wrote about Strang. The, his Strang's top aide goes on trial, um, or one of his top aides goes on trial. He's convicted, but it's overturned on a technicality because the sheriff didn't sign some paper right or something. In real time, the, <laughs> a couple of newspapers in the area are like basically saying the sheriff is totally on the take. How could this happen? And then P.S. Strang, um, Strang's aide, so he doesn't get sent to the state pen. He stays in the local jail, and P.S. is a, a jailbreak. Um, and as the local paper, Riley, uh, stated, we don't expect his return anytime soon. <laughs> and so what this and some other evidence I've done, you know, is, is as close as you can come as putting Strang at a scene of a crime. And one of Strang's other top aides later wrote um, that Strang led the jailbreak. So um, I, I think, you know, my book, more than any other, but I think it pretty clearly proves that at least a lot of these stories were true. Um, were some of them made up? Sure. I suppose if I were running a, a, a horse theft ring, I might say, oh, yeah, we're Mormons from Beaver Island, if I got caught. But this was a, if this was a case where it was absolutely one of, it was one of Strang's, he had these, these two brothers who were sort of his, his muscle men, his enforcers, and it was one of them. Um, and they, they, they were involved in a lot of other, you know, shootouts and whatnot. Um, 
so yeah, he, he did not make friends with a lot of people, including the, the local fishermen um, on Beaver Island. Um, there was a situation up there was kind of an American story where you had three groups um, who were all sort of marginalized by American society. You had um, the Mormons and you had the Native Americans who by treaty were pretty much supposed to leave, but were still sticking around on a nearby island. And then you had these local fishermen, and many of them were Irish who had fled the potato famine um, and were, you know, desperate in their own ways. And all these three of these kind of groups were thrown together in this little place in the northernmost wilderness uh, and certainly at the northernmost part of Lake Michigan. And um, not much good came of it. Um, but uh, Strang was not loved by his neighbors. Let's put it that way. Tonight we're talking with Miles Harvey about his book, The King of Confidence. He's an author and a professor of English at DePaul University in Chicago. Uh, Miles, we're talking about James Strang, this very, very bizarre but also very fascinating story. He's on. He's declared himself king. He's on Beaver Island. He is um, um, accused of piracy, and there's some evidence to support that. Was those were le- legitimate. Uh, charges and uh, something he was in fact engaged in what did his what did his followers think of him did they revere him to the point of his of his death or how did that go yeah i think well you know he was always losing followers but he was always gaining followers and i think some people um like you know we didn't have this term cult of personality then but i think he that was very much what it was i think some people forgave him Everything. I think there's also just this this idea that is again a little hard for us to to understand. Is that I think at the time many of his followers felt that these crimes they were committing were necessary because they had been chosen to usher in the second coming, and there wasn't much time, and they could not deal with you know minor earthly concerns, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the things I found in Strang's newspaper was uh, a piece excerpted from the great um, freed slave and abolitionist leader Frederick Douglass's one of his autobiographies. And Strang clearly excerpted it. I, could fi- I couldn't find this, this passage from this, you know, just new uh, autobiography anywhere else, autobiography anywhere else uh, in any other newspaper in the country. And it was signed... Fred Douglas, which also cracked me up. So that's, <laughs> that's amusing. Funny. But then, then I looked at what it was, and Strang was was truly an abolitionist, and I and I I'd be glad to talk to you about that. I think it's the one true thing in his life, his one core belief. But there was another thing. It, the, of all the things you could have excerpted from this memoir by Douglas, he excerpted a chapter where Douglas is talking about how. For slaves, sometimes it was okay to steal because they were a persecuted minority. And when your own survival was at stake, it was okay to steal from others. And to Strang's people, that that would have read exactly like what was sometimes called the law of consecration, this idea that you were just taking God's property from somewhere else. And, and, and your Mormon listeners will, will know that consecration can be a very good thing, like a tithing kind of thing. And this word is sometimes misused, but at this time period, it was also used in well certain certain groups in Nauvoo, but also definitely on Beaver Island. This idea of consecrating other people's stuff um, 
for the greater good of God. And of course, that also benefited Strang and his his followers. You know, he was trying to run a fairly large colony on a on a fairly law, small island. It's the biggest island, I think, in all of Lake Michigan, but that's not saying much. Um, in, in very difficult circumstances, and you know, um, these, among other things, these robberies uh, gave him some cash flow to feed his people. Did they construct a, a city there? Or did they? Was it a permanent um, settlement? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's hard to call it a city. Um, but it, there's a town still there. It, it, Beaver Island is a very beautiful place. I, I, I urge your, your readers to go there, and we Midwesterners like it a great deal. You know, it's sort of a legendary place, um, probably because of Strang, but there's not much of Strang left. But there was a town called St. James, St. James Strang, um, on one part of the island. And really, that's the only town still on the island. Strang's colony is, is mostly gone, but he was a great, um, like a lot of people in that period, he was a great namer of uh, uh, landforms and landmarks. And so the, the island is still uh, filled with uh, names that um, his residents, um, and he and his residents gave it, including there's like one long strip of a paved road. It's sort of the biggest road on the island. It's called the King's Highway. And <laughs> and he had, uh, you know, it, it wasn't obviously asphalt, and I think it was what they called corduroy, where they'd lay logs down uh, perpendicular to the way the road was going. Uh, but it was it was the big road, and he he designed it, or someone in, in his colony designed it and laid it down. So the the island, um, yeah, it was it was not a big city, but he he certainly had he certainly had followers, and they eventually they they forced the other uh, white. Uh, settlers who had who had gone there out, and the Native Americans sort of got out before Strang got there. They were in an island nearby and in other places nearby, but I think they they saw him coming and said, "We want nothing to do with this." Um, wisely, um, so yeah, there were there were a lot of people in a small space on that island. But on the other hand, they sort of there was a lot of um, rents or uh, mortgages being paid. <laughs> <laughs> When you talk about uh, the Mormon community, you often think of polygamy. Where was Strang on polygamy? Well, uh, when Strang was um, trying to make a case to be Joseph Smith's uh, heir to the church, he was fiercely anti-polygamy. Uh, he said, I will never change about this. Um, it was uh, an open secret that Smith, Brigham Young, several other um, uh, Mormon leaders were involved in polygamy in Nauvoo, uh, and it was controversial there. Um, one of the guys who was kicked out um, was a guy um, by the name of um, uh, John C. Bennett. Uh, John, yeah, John C. Bennett, and and Bennett was the guy who sort of was a early uh, practitioner and um, encourager of. Uh, polygamy at Nauvoo, and he was kicked out because he wasn't very subtle about it. He didn't put sort of a uh, spiritual sheen on it. He just sort of, you know, enjoyed it. And uh, um, uh, uh, he was kicked out of Nauvoo, and then he later joined uh, Strang's colony, even when Strang was declaring his lifelong opposition to polygamy. Well, sure enough, when uh, even before when Strang got to Beaver Island, he suddenly uh, changed his mind about polygamy. He says by revelation, he said, you know, 
uh, I was told I needed to be polygamous. And, and and by the time he died, he had five wives, four of whom were, were pregnant at the time of his death in 1856. During your research at all, were you ever able to uh, talk with any of Strang's descendants? Uh, you know, on a, on a radio show, not unlike this one, uh, not too long ago, someone called and said uh, that he was one of Strang's descendants. And, and I think I've received an email from another person who claims to be, and I, and I emailed that gentleman, uh, he, um, and he, I don't think he responded. So don't, I don't know, uh, you know how these things are. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Perhaps he was an actual descendant, or perhaps right. he decided, you know, I don't really want to talk to this guy, which of course is very legitimate. So no, um, uh, I, d- I did speak, um, to a gentleman who's still a member of the Strangite Church, um, in Burlington, um. Uh, and he was an interesting guy to talk to. There still are, uh, I think their website says uh, it, there's only a hundred or so members of his church left. I, I could be wrong about that. I'm certainly not an expert on the the modern day, the 21st century Strangite church, but there still are some Strangites around. And uh, I've been in touch with some of them since the book came out. And 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 so that's, that's been interesting. Um, but I guess I would say that, you know, with this book, um, previous books have been sort of interested in him as sort of a footnote to Mormon history mm-hmm. or kind of a, a Midwest story. You know, one book's called uh, Assassination of a Michigan King. And I just saw him from the start as uh, I wasn't uninterested in his theological beliefs or lack of beliefs. I wasn't uninterested in sort of where he fits into Midwest culture, but I saw him from the start as this figure who not only can tell us a ton about the mid-19th century, but maybe even perhaps a little bit about, about our own time. You, uh, you use the word strangite, so obviously there's a, uh, a legacy to this. Um, did Strang, as a writer, you said he was a good writer, did he leave any significant religious writings? Oh, yeah. He left, you know, his own, um, uh, you know, fairly lengthy um it's kind of half a religious book, and again, he 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 claimed this was, you know, miraculously inspired by God. He claimed that he was translating some more plates, that he found some more plates that he was translating. Um, some of and and he did a, another edition of this book, which was going to press when he when he um, died. Some of it's very self-serving, you know. It says basically you need to. Um, placed James Strang above all other people, all other leaders on earth. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's very, um, it, but it's also a very interesting book in other ways. For instance, it's very, um, it seems almost far-seeing about ecological matters. There's a lot about in the, there's, there's a whole, you know, small section of the book about when you chop down trees, you have to grow new trees, right? There's this idea of replacing what we cut down, which was not, you know, that familiar an idea then. Um, And so he was very fascinating, very intelligent, very progressive in many ways. Just, um, and and in other ways, I think he was just uh, a scoundrel. And, 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 you know, for a writer, you know, if you're writing fiction, you want a three-dimensional character. If you're writing a film, you want a three-dimensional character. And it's the same for us nonfiction writers. This guy just really, uh, you know, comes out of the comes comes out of the past in three dimensions, and um, it was really fun for me to work with him. 
So here we are. We've got the king of Beaver Island. We've got James String. He's declared himself king. Um, we've talked about a lot of aspects of what that meant for him and for his followers. How does this all come to an end to him? for him? Well, um, polygamy was one of the reasons. So um, his... I mean, and there's there's some great stories to go with that. In his first polygamous wife, um, before he had announced his opposition, uh, his his support of polygamy, he had traveled the East Coast for many months, recruiting members in 1849, 1850, um, and and get, getting money with uh, a, a young man he introduced as Charles J. Douglas, his nephew and private secretary. Well, Charles J. Douglas wasn't Charles Day. J- Jay Douglas, uh, she was Elvira Field, <laughs> his first polygamous wife in men's clothes. And I mean, one of the interesting things about this period is um, not that other, some people weren't on to Strang, and there were all sorts of letters about who is, there's something wrong with this person, Strang's traveling with. I think it's a woman. Um, and, you know, uh, obviously they were, you know, going back to their hotel that they shared that at night. And, you know, he didn't want his first wife to know about her. But eventually, uh, Elvira Field sort of uh, returned to Beaver Island as Elvira Field and not as Charles J. Douglas. Um, but 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 they managed to fool a lot of people along the way. And, uh, you know, part of that is just the gender uh, stuff of the mid-19th century. There were these, you know, really extravagant displays of femininity, you know, many petticoats, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think people just were not used to seeing... Um, the, a woman in men's clothes, and they just were inclined to believe it was a man, even uh, to disbelieve their eyes. Strang was very good at making people disbelieve logic, disbelieve their eyes, disbelieve their ears. Um, but so, but eventually, um, polygamy becomes an issue on Beaver Island. You know, even Elvira, this the former Charles J. Douglas, later wrote. Uh, she wrote a little memoir, and she later wrote that, you know. Only a, a small fraction of Beaver Island ever practiced polygamy, and it was resented. A lot of people had moved uh, to Strang's colony because he opposed polygamy. The, the the most outward reason for this rebellion was what they called, uh, they sometimes call it the dress revolution, the bloomer rebellion. He ordered all women on the island to wear uh, bloomers, <laughs> to wear uh, <laughs> essentially pajama pants um, underneath slightly higher skirts. Um, again, if you see pictures of this fashion, you will not think, oh my, shocking. Yeah. How could you ever ask a woman to do that? But I think, again, you have to sort of think like what it might be if like in the 1940s, um, someone had ordered all women to wear bikinis into work. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it was just um, a shocking thing. I also think, you know, the thing, J.B., is I think that the, the, this, this Bloomer Rebellion had a lot of symbolic quality, and one that I think our culture can completely understand. It, um, Strang supporters, um, Strang insisted and became more and more insistent, and in really wanted to assert his power through, you, you must wear these, this clothing. You must wear my uniform, you women. And so Strang supporters, it was a, a sign of devotion to Strang and allegiance to Strang to do that. And Strang's opponents were the people who, either the women who said no, or their husbands, or some combination of that. Um, again, I just don't think it was all the clothing. I think it was, like, we can think about masks in our own culture, you know, mm-hmm. protective masks, how um, 
To some people, they symbolize safety. To some people, they symbolize freedom. To some people, they um, uh, symbolize opposition to the president. You know, it's not about the masks after a certain point, if you know what I mean. And I right. think it was it was the same way for the people on Beaver Island. In any case, um, a group of conspirators um, slowly coalesced um, and um, made contacts with people off the island, um, almost certainly including the U.S. government and the state of Michigan. And in 1856, um, um, a a couple of them uh, uh, ambushed Strang um, as he was walking down to um, um, meet uh, the captain of, uh, of a federal ship. In fact, the, the, the ship that had raided Beaver Island earlier, the same ship, um, they ambushed him and left him dying on the, on the pier in St. James, the town named after him, and ran aboard this, this boat and escaped. No one was ever charged in this, in this killing. Um, and eventually he was taken back to the, the little town of Burlington, where I was first introduced to the story. Um, uh, where he died, and uh, you know his his death was a front page story on the New York Times and made national headlines and and headlines really all over the world and his his shooting, um, and um, uh, the colony didn't survive very long after that. A group of vigilantes raided um, the island and really forced uh, the residents off. Uh, in a really brutal way, um, basically stole their possessions and left them penniless on these boats. Um, and so the remnants of Strang's colony were mostly in, in Berlin, and are mostly in Burlington, but they were kind of scattered to the wind. He had not named a replacement prophet, and, and no one ever really took over the church, and it sort of uh, died with him in a certain way, although it's obviously there's there's still certain elements of it out there. So, but... But, um, uh, you know, it's a very interesting story. Did he die wealthy? Uh, I don't think he died particularly wealthy. I mean, it's hard to to say. Uh, Certainly, uh, you know, there wasn't much chance to get much wealth off the island. I will say, you know, that the the houses in Burlington, they're they're modest, they're quite handsome sort of stone houses. Most of the the houses on the island were, were... were log. I mean, some of them were, uh, you know, by description, quite nice. Um, you know, I'm not sure he was ever a, a really uh, super wealthy man. I mean, I, I think he had a lot of power, which is, I think, what he was after. And I, I think he that there was a part of him who came to believe um, that he was, if not a prophet of God, a superior human being, and it someone who deserved the adulation and uh, allegiance of those around him. Miles, it's a fascinating story. The book is called The King of Confidence. But before I let you go, give us just a, you know, a, a couple sentences about your other two books, because I find the descriptions of those to be rather interesting as well. Oh, yeah, those are really fun books to work on. So the first book I wrote was, it was called uh, The Island of Lost Maps. And it's a, a contemporary story and part of it about a guy who went around the country in the 1990s stealing old maps out of libraries. It was a really widespread crime spree of old maps. Um, and so you kind of use this true crime story. I've always been fascinated by maps, J.B., and I just kind of obsessed with them. 
to as a jumping off point for sort of a meditation on maps and a history of maps. Um, and so that was a really fun book and that, that sold really well. And, 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 you know, that was a fun experience. And my second book was about the first European artist in North America, a guy by the name of Jacques Lamont de Morgue, who came, um, in 1564 and 1565 to what's now, uh, well, probably to what's now Jacksonville, Florida. Um, there's some argument, uh, about where he actually landed, but this French colony, um, was eventually wiped out by the Spanish. But in the meantime, this is like the first effort to really um, paint Native Americans as they were. Um, The Spanish weren't that interested in that. They didn't really take Native Americans that seriously. And and the French had cynical reasons for doing it. But but this guy later, he just led this incredibly interesting, Zelig-like life. He later... um, moved to England um, where he worked for Walter Raleigh and um, uh, trained John White, uh, or, well, we don't know if he trained John White. He was in contact with John White, the, the great artist of the Virginia colony. Um, and so he was just this, this fascinating, fascinating man who um, was also an early map maker. And, you know, uh, I just, that was a tough book to write, but I managed to find out some interesting new stuff about him in, in old French archives. And I just, you know, I just love the hunt on that stuff. I did a Zoom event earlier tonight with a fiction writer I quite admire about uh, historical research in um, nonfiction and fiction. And I, I just love digging, digging for this stuff. I just think it's just so much fun to see this portal into the past and walk through it. I agree, and I'm actually, I share your passion for old maps. I really do. I've got many, uh, and they adorn my office walls and the, my house. Um, I really love old maps. Yeah, they're, they're, they're fascinating. I mean, I, I, I just, they are so much more. Well, and as you know, J.B., like often they're wonderfully inaccurate. Yeah, But yeah. inaccurate in ways that tell us so much about uh, the assumptions Yep. The beliefs, the hopes, the fears of the people who made them. Exactly. And so they're just so full of stories. I can't, I just, I love it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree. Yeah. We're out of time, Miles, but thank you so much. Where can people find the books? Oh, you know, um, you could go to my website, uh, mileshavey.com, M-I-L-E-S-H-A-R. E-E-Y.com. Otherwise, they're just going to be um, at, at, at bookstores. It's not, if bookstores have reopened in your area, or you can definitely get it through Amazon. It's called The King of Confidence. Uh, and um, I, um, I had a blast writing it, and uh, it seems like people are having a good time reading it. And uh, I, I just urge your readers, if they're interested, to go out and buy it. Well, the authors could use the money. And we certainly had a good time talking about it tonight. So thank you for that. Thank, uh, thank you for sharing with us, and thank you for being here. My deep thanks to you. It was a real honor. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.